Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Your regular guide sharing tools and expertise to build a life full of positivity and possibility. Here's your host, Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Dan Simons and um, I'm been really looking forward to this for for quite a while since Janet um, suggested Dan as a, a podcast guest, and you'll discover why quite quickly because he's um, he and some of his research have become standard fare for us in psychology and some really really brilliant um, work he's done over the course of the last well however long. But um, I'm really looking forward to this. So Dan, hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute treat, and um, I'm really looking forward to this. So um, how would you describe who you are and what you do, Dan? Uh, I'm a professor in a psychology department, and I do uh, work mostly in the area of visual cognition, which is the study of how perception and attention and cognition interact. Uh, So I do work on how we remember visual information and how we focus attention on some information and not other information. Um, so most of my basic research is on things like that and how they tie into things like distraction or what we notice and what we don't notice in the world around us. Fantastic. So, I mean, again, I detect from your um, accent, you're not from the UK. So which part of the world are you in today? Um, I'm in central Illinois, so about two hours south of Chicago, right in the center of the United States. And I, I grew up about two hours from, two and a half hours from here in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. It all sounds so glamorous when you're sitting at the, in the south coast of uh, Yeah, England. glamorous Glamorous isn't how I describe it. We have a lot of corn. Do you? Uh, and soybeans. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, tell me, tell me about your career. How did you, how do you start doing what you do today? Well, I, I started out actually in a completely different subfield of psychology. I started out in cognitive development and I was uh, studying things like object recognition and categorization for the first couple of three years of grad school um, and gradually became more and more interested in adult perception and cognition, um, partly because it was much easier to do than working with kids um, and and partly because of the sorts of questions you could ask. So I I kind of shifted over to uh, working on visual change detection. and actually, most of those studied, studies started from studies of categorization where I was trying to use a task in which people were detecting changes to objects, and I was interested in what kinds of changes they would notice for different kinds of objects. So would they notice some kinds of changes more to animals or to man-made art objects? Um, and what I was finding was that nobody was noticing any of them. Wow. So that, that led into the study of what we call change blindness, this tendency not to notice changes from one moment to the next especially when we're focusing on something else. Um, so that was, that was kind of the start of that work. And I was uh, in graduate school with a, a fellow graduate student, Daniel Levin. Um, two of us were in the same lab, and we both became very much interested in these sorts of things. Dan's, uh, Dan Levin's a, a filmmaker on the side. And we started doing some change detection with motion pictures, so editing mistakes deliberately introduced into the films. So somebody's wearing a scarf, and then they're not wearing a scarf, or plate settings change from one moment to the next. Right. And we were interested in how well people noticed those sorts of changes and what kinds of changes they did and didn't notice. So that's kind of was the start of a lot of that work on visual attention and visual awareness. And is this, is this human trait or are some people better at this thing than the other? You know, that, that's really actually the question I've been most interested in over the last maybe 10, 15 years. Um, is for, for change detection where you're actually trying to detect changes to scenes, there are some, some, some individual differences. So some people are, are better at it than others. 
some are faster at detecting changes. Um, but the differences aren't huge. All of us have these sorts of limits on what we can notice. And uh, one of the things that I find most fascinating is if you think that anybody's going to be good at this sort of change detection, it's going to be people who are maybe really detail-oriented or people who really make a career out of, out of that. And I've actually interviewed the people who work on Hollywood movie sets um, who are responsible for making sure nothing changes from one scene to the next, uh, the now-called script supervisors. And what's fascinating about those folks is not so much that they detect changes that much better or that their visual memory is any better than yours or mine. Um, they say maybe a little bit, but they really don't think that they're fundamentally different. Um, what's different about them is that they know that they're not great at memory. Right? So most of us don't realize how much we miss. Uh, we've had people come into the lab and say, oh yeah, I regularly notice changes in movies. Uh, and then we'll sit them down in front of a one-minute movie and they miss all of the ten changes we put in the movie. Um, the reason they think they're good at it is they are fully aware of all of the times when there was a change and they noticed it, but they're not aware of all the changes that they didn't see in the first place. Right. So they go through life thinking, oh yeah, I always notice changes, completely oblivious to all of the changes that they missed. So most of us are like that. We have the wrong intuitions about how much we keep track of. The script supervisors, the people who do this for a living, they know that their memories are fallible, that they don't remember everything in detail because they get feedback right away. So if they think, hey, this person was wearing a jacket over their left shoulder, not over their right shoulder, and they'll rely on their memory, and then they go back and look at the footage, and they were completely wrong. They get that sort of check on their memory all the time, and they realize how often what they thought they knew perfectly was wrong. Most of us don't get that. So most of us have the wrong intuitions, which I think is actually the most interesting phenomenon out of all of the sort of work that we do on failures of awareness, it's not so much that we miss things that's interesting, it's that we don't think we will. Right. So does this explain why people who witness accidents are so unreliable as witnesses? It's, it's related, right? And part of it is not so much that we're unreliable. We're all unreliable as our memories are incomplete. We don't, we don't take in every detail around us and remember every detail, and we can't recall things with perfect fidelity the way that you play back a videotape or a recording over and over again. Uh, we kind of integrate what we know with what we experienced, and sometimes those can become distorted. Um, the, the bigger danger is we tend to trust that when we recall something vividly, that it's accurate. Right. Um, so we'll often have really vivid memories that prove to be wrong, and we have no idea of that because we rarely have the documentary evidence to go back to. So every year I kind of joke about writing uh, a, an op-ed, an editorial piece, uh, commenting on how some politician's false memory or false recollection that they'll be accused of having lied when really they might have just misremembered it. Um, and every single election cycle, there's at least one of these cases where a politician claims to have done something in their past and then the evidence comes out and shows that they didn't. Uh, and they're accused of lying. Wow. And in so many of these sorts of cases, they're just experiencing the same memory distortions we all do that kind of inflate our own abilities in our memory or inflate our own past. The difference is that they have a press corps following them around documenting everything they do. Yeah. So there are people digging into those records to see whether they're right or not. So, so you're sort of saying that as humans, we're sort of, our, our memories are fundamentally flawed. What, what's, what's, well, what I wouldn't say fundamentally flawed. I'd, I'd say that our memories are not what we think they are. Right. So our memories are really good for what we need them to do for our daily life. Most of the time we can remember what we need to remember. 
Um, but we think our memories work much more like a video camera, when in reality they're more sketchy than that. So, so you often, um, and my line of work, I often bump into people who tell me about the trauma they've suffered in pre, you know, in younger younger lives, or as young adults, or you know, as older adults when they're when they're mature themselves. Are you saying that the memories that, and the way that the memory has been laid down could actually be incorrect? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so th this can happen for memories that are very vivid. Now, that doesn't mean that they're always incorrect, and they, you know, often they're not going. Often they'll be accurate. Um, but memories can be wrong, even for really vivid emotional things. So, one of the things that Chris Chabria and I did when we were writing um, our, our book on these sorts of mistaken intuitions. Um, I wrote out my memories of what I was doing, where I was, who I was with, when I first heard about the, uh, the attacks on the World Trade Center in, on September 2011. Yeah. And you know, I wrote it down in detail. So I remembered being in my lab. Um, I remembered my three graduate students being in the lab with me. They were all named Steve, which that, that part's actually right. Yeah. Um, and I wrote out in detail what we did, like how I heard about it, one of the... One of the thieves kind of hollered from the other room. We went and looked in the computer, and we were trying to speculate on what, what happened, whether somebody left their flight path or what. Uh, eventually, we set up a TV and watched it there, and then I went and picked up my wife and went home. Uh, so I had this detailed memory. I then independently emailed each of the three students named Steve and had them write out their own memories without talking to me or without talking to each other. And what I discovered was my memory was wrong. I remember all three Steves being there. Only one of them was. One of them was across campus giving a talk, uh, and the other one was asleep. Um, I didn't remember the person who was actually in the room with me the entire morning, who was a postdoctoral student of mine who'd been there for a year. So this was, you know, ten years, a little less than ten years after the events, and I couldn't recall in detail. You know, that what I what still feels right to me was was wrong. I have this vivid memory. I still remember them all being there, and I was wrong. Uh, so we can have a very strong, very vivid, detailed memory that turns out not to be right. And the, the real challenge is trying to distinguish between the ones that are right and the ones that aren't. And without external evidence, that's often really hard to do. Uh, well, that, but that's really, that's really troublesome for someone yeah. who's, in my world, when you're looking back and you know, you're know discussing childhood trauma and mm -hmm. attachment and all that sort of stuff. And So what you're saying yeah. is... You know, you're talking about the um, adult memory there in a way, but actually an adult remembering a childhood memory must be even more um, prone yeah. to error. Well, there, there's a danger. You know, one way to think about memory is it's not like, you know, a perfect recording of what happened. Right. Um, it's, you know, each time we recall a memory, it's more like we're improvising on that theme. It's kind of a, more like a jazz performance that kind of changes every time to some extent. You know, often details will stick around in, in, in pretty good detail, but... Some things can kind of be integrated, new stuff can get added, old stuff can be taken away. And this is, this is a phenomenon that's been studied in cognitive psychology now for many years. Yeah. Um, that even those you know, so-called flashbulb memories, the things that just are supposed to be burned into your brain, even though they're vivid, they're not necessarily accurate. They can become distorted over time. And this is, this is actually a fairly well-known thing in the memory literature. But it doesn't jive with our intuitions because yeah. we feel like we're recalling things vividly. Um, and we've all had this experience where you and a sibling are recalling some, or a spouse or a friend are recalling something that happened to both of you uh, much earlier, and you'll have completely different recollections of what happened. And both of you are absolutely convinced the other person must be wrong because your memory is so vivid. 
it's possible both of you are partially right, both of you might be completely wrong. Um, memories can become distorted over time. And that's fascinating if you think about what people with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia talk about, where they say they can't remember what happened last week, but they can remember mm -hmm. vi vividly, you know, mm -hmm. what happened to them in, in um, you know, their youth, youth or uh, their youthful days or, you know, early 20s. Yeah. But what you're actually saying is that may not be true either. Well, I mean, there probably is a grain of truth to all of it. Is it it's, right. you know, these mem memories don't come out of whole cloth, right? They're, they're, there's got to be some element that triggers what we recall and what we don't. But details can get changed, and, and the details aren't what we really need. You know, think about what memory is really for most of the time. It's to help us predict the future. Yeah. And it's a story we tell about ourselves and about our history that helps us explain why things happened the way they did and to predict what will happen in the future. And for that, memory is really good, even if the details aren't perfect. So if you're thinking back and you're an optimist or you have very, very high self-esteem, will you tend to make your memories more grandiose and therefore the reverse be true? <laughs> if you have low self-esteem, would you, would you be diminishing your impact within your own memories? You know, I don't, I don't know if there's any uh, research specifically on how personality interacts with how grandiose our memories become. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it wouldn't be surprising, right? If you have a really inflated sense of self, then you're going to cast yourself as the hero in every memory story. Um, so it could well happen that it gets, you know, built up over time. But, you know, the, there's a sense in which we all do that to some extent, right? Because we are the ones who are, we're the narrator of our own memories, right? We're the ones experiencing the things. So it's not surprising that they kind of get better in the retelling. So it's, so it's, 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 it's bigger every time you talk about how big it was when you caught it. Yes, that's true. Uh, yes, there is something in that. Uh, there is some, so the, actually it's very good news in a way if you're, if you're being defined by something in your own past because the, there is a possibility that the, the past you have invented or the past you have jazzed upon or extemporized mm -hmm. upon may not be as troublesome as you think. That's, that's quite good news in a way. It can be, yeah. I mean, there, there's, um, during the 1980s and 90s, there were a lot of uh, concerns about false memories and distorted memories yes. Yes. of childhood abuse. And that, that was, uh, it, it's a very difficult topic to study, of course, because there are plenty of real cases of abuse yes. out there. And they're traumatizing, and people have those traumas affecting them for the rest of their lives. And whether or not their memories are accurate, they're still experiencing the trauma. Yeah. Um, there are plenty of cases you know, that are documented that could not have happened the way that people remember them having happened. Uh, and that's a really unfortunate situation because then people are experiencing trauma from something that didn't actually happen the way they think it did. So that, that can be a negative as well. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, so, so well, I, I distracted you out of talking about um, visual change detection, but mm -hmm. this is this is fascinating. So, how much of how much of your research has been in the memory thing versus the um, visual change area? Well, you know, I don't actually do a whole lot of research on false memory and memory distortion. Uh, yes. It's just that the, these phenomena are very similar, right, yeah. and they're closely tied together. So, a lot of a lot of the work I've done focuses on people's intuitions about how their memory and their attention and their perception work. So they're all kind of intertwined in that way. That where perception ends and memory begins is ambiguous. Yes. Um, but, what so, you were, but what you were saying is that people who are better at spotting changes often are more realistic about their own personal memory. Well, not necessarily. So the, the key with the, the people who are doing script supervision is not that they have a better visual memory uh, in the first place. It's that they know they don't have a visual memory that's great, so they don't rely on it. Right. They don't trust their own memories. They know that their intuition 
yeah, I feel this must be right, they don't rely on that. Instead, they go and check the record to make sure that they're accurate. Right. Um, and they have t tricks of the trade, right? So people who do that work, um, what they do is they learn where to focus attention. So they know that some things nobody in the audience will ever notice, and other things everybody in the audience will notice, and they really zero in on the things that people are most likely to pay attention to in a movie, and don't worry about the details that nobody's going to pay attention to. So for example, if you've got a room with a bunch of curtains in it, and they're kind of crunched together, people aren't going to pay attention to counting the number of folds in those curtains. I mean, there might be some people who like to watch DVDs really slowly and go back and forth and spot those sorts of mistakes, but mm. most people aren't going to care about that, but they will care a lot about uh, somebody's expression or whether, you know, what they're, where they're standing relative to somebody else. Those sorts of things will jump out more because that's what they're focusing their attention on. Yeah. So they actually go through checklists of things that people are likely to notice because they know they can't pay attention to everything. Interesting. I'm thinking of the new Star Trek and everyone's up in arms about the fact that things look different and the canon mm -hmm. doesn't work and, and, and the things that people are particularly troubled about is, is quite interesting, yeah. isn't it? And so, so actually this is an example of it. So in in normal life, why mm -hmm. why is this visual change thing important for us as humans? I'm not sure that it is inherently important in the real life. So this sort of change blindness, I think of it as a lot like a visual illusion. Right? So Visual illusions are interesting because they reveal how the visual system works, um, and the way you reveal that is by doing something that doesn't typically happen in the world. Right. So you're, you're, in essence, breaking the visual system to reveal its defaults. And without doing that, you could never really know what those defaults were. You could never really know what sorts of shortcuts and tricks the visual system uses to make sense of the world. Yeah. I think change blindness is a lot like that. So. If you're looking out in the world and something changes instantaneously right in front of you, right in front of you, you'll see it, right? It'll, it'll grab attention. Mm -hmm. um, what change blindness studies do is they break that system. So they momentarily make the screen go blank, or they insert a film cut, or they make a change while you're moving your eyes, mm -hmm. all of which serve to sort of disrupt that motion. Right. Uh, and when you do that, it turns out we're not storing as much as we thought we were. So if you just went through life watching the world and noticing changes, you'd think, oh, we must be great at change detection because I notice changes all the time. Yes. But it's only by breaking the system and taking away that sort of automatic mechanism that would reveal how little we're actually holding on to. Are you familiar with David Eagleman's ideas that everything's constructed in the brain and projected into the real world? Um, you know, there's, there's, I, I don't know the details of his, of his perspective, but that's... There, there are a lot of views of how we see the world that are based on this idea of more direct perception. That One is that we're seeing what's actually there and picking up the information. Another approach is to assume that what we're doing is piecing together a model of how the world works yes. and what's out there that is an interpretation. It's not, it's not the actual thing. Um, I, I kind of fall in between. I tend, to, I tend to think that there is a world of information out there that's reliable and robust and that we're trying to perceive and get information about. Our visual system does a really good job of extracting what we really need from moment to moment. Um, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily keep a model of it in our head after the fact. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, I, I, it's, it's fair to say that uh, whether you like this or not, you, your name's become synonymous with the, a particular experiment with um, <laughs> and a particular yeah. animal. And a particular film. So, do you want to you want to take us through that? Because I think as soon as you begin to talk about this, people will hear sure. bells ringing. Yeah, this is, this is a video that took a life of its own, uh, kind of unexpectedly. Um, so, this was actually a class undergraduate project 
um, that we started. It was designed to replicate a much earlier set of studies by my colleague Ulrich Neisser, one, really one of the founders of cognitive psychology, the area that I work in. Um, and the study was a demonstration of, of how well we can focus attention and what the consequences of doing that are. So um, we mimicked his tasks. We had people wearing white shirts passing a basketball among themselves. And all people had to do was count how many times the people wearing white passed the ball. And we had other variants of this where they had to keep running totals of a couple different kinds of passes and so on. Um, the challenge was they sometimes would fake passes, they'd dribble it around each other, sometimes they'd pass it in the air, sometimes on the ground. And there were also three people wearing black shirts passing their own ball. And people had to ignore the people wearing black. And it's actually a remarkable feat to be able to do this, to really zero in on one set of people and ignore another set and keep track of only the right passes. It'd be a difficult task to program a computer to do, right. a computer vision system. But we have people doing this, and we're really good at focusing attention, at paying attention to what we want to pay attention to. So people can do this. They can count the passes by the players wearing white and ignore the passes by the players wearing black. But one of the key elements here is that when people are focusing their attention, they tend not to notice other unexpected things. Right. So in this case, we did things like had a person in a gorilla suit walk into the middle of the video, turn and face the camera, thump its chest, and then walk off the, the other side of the screen about nine seconds later. Yeah. Um, and what we find is about half the time people didn't see the gorilla. Yeah. They, were, they were so intently counting these passes and ignoring one group of players and paying attention to another that they just don't see the unexpected thing. And, and the video really took on a life of its own. If, if we'd known it was going to go viral in the days before YouTube, we probably would have filmed it in higher quality. Yes. And it's on your, it's on your site, isn't it, Art? Uh, mm -hmm. Theinvisiblegorilla.com slash gorilla underscore experiment. Which, and, it, yeah. and I've seen this a number of times in different training courses, and, it's, and it never fails to astonish me how, how often yeah, people don't see it. What's interesting to me, again, is not that so much that we miss unexpected things, because we've known that now for... 30-some-odd years uh, or more, um, actually well more now. Than now, but um, So that, that phenomenon, the idea that we could miss something that's not the focus of our attention, isn't surprising to people in my, in my field. Um, but what makes that particular result so compelling is that it's so counterintuitive. Right? And it's counterintuitive because we're convinced that if something really important happens right in front of us, that of course it'll grab our attention and we'll notice it. And it's really hard to discount the idea that, oh yeah, of course I missed a gorilla. People don't have that intuition. They have the intuition that, yeah, of course I would see a person in a gorilla suit thumping their chest at me. Yes. Right? It's so obvious, how could I miss it? Mm. And it's that strong intuition that's about what we do and don't notice that's so powerful. So, so clearly this capacity for humans to be able to zero in and really focus on something is quite fascinating because yeah. um, working with people with anxiety, they're the people who have mm -hmm. seemed to have lost this capacity to really grip their cognitive yeah. state. Yeah. And, and, there, and there are lots of people who struggle with the ability to focus attention and ignore distraction, right? right. And that, that's, it's something that, for the most part, we do really, really well. And it's, and it's a crucial skill, right? You wouldn't want to be distracted by everything happening around you that wasn't the focus of your attention. Sure. Right? It'd be debilitating. Um, so that, that's, you know, people often say, well, how can I get rid of this? And how can I always notice the gorilla? And it's like, you don't want to be able to always notice the gorilla. Because if you're always noticing the gorilla, you're not always you're not able to focus, mm. and focusing is critical. So that's interesting because we work with a bunch of people with um, uh, situation response. Um, no, situ mm. was it um, 
Situational awareness. Or? Yeah, that's right. SRS, I think it's called. And I mean, these are people who are, um, you know, completely aware of what the environment around them and are constantly, mm -hmm. constantly distracted. So I'm guessing, mm -hmm. I'm guessing one of the cures for that is the learning the skill of focusing. Yeah, I mean, I, I view it less as a as a skill. It's something that kind of our visual system gives us to some extent by default. So even people who really struggle with distraction, they still are able to focus attention to some extent, right? They're not taking everything in equally. They still will be interested in some things and not in other things. And there's just too much information out there to be able to take in everything at once. We, we have to selectively focus because our brain's just not built to take in everything. A computer vision system in principle could do much better at that, mm. right? Um, because it doesn't have that same limitation. Interesting. So this leads us on neatly to this idea that it's possible to train your brain to have greater focus or train your brain to be able to um, have greater plasticity and such like. But I know you've been doing some research in this area. Can you sort of fill us in on that? Yeah, so uh, there, there's actually two elements to that. One is that we actually don't find huge individual differences in whether or not people notice unexpected things, which you'd expect if you could train yourself to notice unexpected things. Right? Just like the script supervisors can't really, through training, become perfect at change detection, uh, nobody seems to be able to always notice everything unexpected right. um, and still be able to do anything else. Um, so, so that's one element of that. But uh, the, the topic you're raising on whether we can train our cognitive performance um, is really a fascinating one. It's, it's one that uh, has a very long history. So there are lots of things we can do to improve our performance. Mm -hmm. uh, and practice is great. Right? So if you practice counting basketball passes over and over and over for hours and hours and hours, you'd get better and better at that task. Yeah. And that's the fundamental characteristic of, of practice is that it improves the thing you practice, yeah. often with exactly the materials that you practice. Mm -hmm. But uh, over the last maybe 20 years or so, there have been some interesting claims about how doing sort of brain training programs or brain games um, by practicing one set of tasks, you could then improve broadly on cognition in other contexts in your so, daily life. So we, that, so, that's the big claim. So can, before we go into that, mm -hmm. can we talk a little bit about the, the sort of 10,000 hours claim, which is, mm -hmm. which is a regular thing in the sort of pop psychology literature? Do you have, do you have a view on that idea that, that if you practice anything it's, for 10,000 hours, you're going to have mastery in that area? Um, I, I think the 10,000 hour number is is kind of nonsensical yeah um and it was uh, it's an idea that was promoted and somewhat distorted from work by anders erickson many years ago uh, malcolm gladwell popularized the, that as a rule but it's really not it's really never been framed exactly that way um the idea is that if you look at experts um and look at what they did in their lives they often practiced for many 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 hours yeah uh, not always sometimes you get prodigies but they often practice for, for tens of thousands of hours. Uh, but that doesn't mean that just practicing for tens of thousands of hours guarantees that you'll become an expert. Yeah, exactly. um, it's a common trait of experts, but it's not necessarily the thing that leads to expertise yeah. in a consistent way. Right. It's the same thing that if you look at, say, look at a successful company and say, okay, what did that company do? Uh, and you look back at their history and see what they did and say, well, that must be why they were successful. Like, well. Not necessarily, because you don't know how many companies did exactly those things and failed. Yeah. They don't exist in your in your worldview. Right? So, in order to really know whether something contributes to success or failure, you really have to have evidence of how often it succeeds and how often it fails. And that, that we don't really have good evidence for. Yes. Um, 
but the the idea that you get better with practice, nobody disputes. Right? That, that's 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 a given. Whether you'll become a grandmaster chess player if you practice enough, probably not, um, because there's talent involved too. Yes, and, um, and with no one we're nowhere closer understanding talent, but. Um, yeah. Practice, we can start to to get the get, get yeah. involved. So, so you were saying that this this idea in brain training is that you can practice one thing and it somehow has a, a halo effect somewhere else, and, and you can right. look so into that. It, it, there, it's a yeah. So it's it's an interesting claim and it's a provocative claim because it does fly in the face of this idea that our learning is specific. Right. Um, that the thing you've practiced, you get better at, which is great. I mean, that's, that's a very useful thing for everybody. We can. Whether or not you've got talent, if you practice something, you'll get better at it. Um, the big promise of the brain training industry was that by doing these sort of typically computerized brain training tasks um, that are often just kind of converted cognitive psychology tasks uh, made into kind of a game-style form, they're often not, you know, they're not all that entertaining, but you have to kind of do them for a long time, and they get more difficult as you do them, and you get better and better at them. The argument was you're training kind of core cognitive capacities. So you're doing things like, the claim was you'd be training, say, working memory, yeah. or speed of processing, or your ability to, uh, to make sense of jumbled speech. And that by doing those things, you're enhancing, say, working memory in general. And because we use working memory in everything we do, that it should have kind of knock-on effects for everything we do. Mm. Uh, that, that was the promise, that practicing working memory on a computerized task with you know, simple displays would train that capacity rather than just how well you do with those simple displays so that anything that uses working memory will benefit. That's that's the big claim. And companies, it's now a multi-billion dollar industry um, and with lots of marketing. Um, and what's what was fascinating to me, a couple of years ago, we started looking into this literature and realized that there had not been a comprehensive review of what the evidence showed. And specifically, there, wasn't, there hadn't been any sort of comprehensive review of the evidence that the companies claimed supported those broad claims. Right. Uh, so there were two, uh, the, the part of the thing that triggered our review was that there was an open letter from critics and skeptics about brain training saying there's no evidence that these games help with real world performance. Um, then a few months later, proponents of brain training released their own open letter saying there's extensive evidence, here are 132 papers. Right. right, And what we did was started with those 132 papers, um, as well as all of the citations on the websites of the leading top 30 brain training companies, went through every single one of those articles in some depth to look at both did they have the right kind of design to tell you anything about brain training effectiveness, did they have a good sample size, did they use, say, a randomized controlled trial the way that you would need to in order to say that that training had benefit? Did they measure real-world outcomes? Um, did they have an appropriate control group that was matched to kind of equate for placebo effects? Mm. Uh, we went through every single study in that literature, everything they cited, and the evidence was remarkably weak. Right. So most of the studies had major methodological flaws or analytical flaws um, that really prevent the study from drawing strong conclusions. Uh, and really none of them met all of the criteria that you'd expect for a good randomized controlled trial. Right. Oh, that's a that's 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 scandalous and depressing at the same time in a way, isn't it? Well, I, I should say it's it's very hard to do those studies right. Yeah. Um, it's it's much harder to actually do that kind of a study properly than it is a medical trial. Because yeah. say if you're trust, testing out a new drug, 
you can control for the placebo effect by randomly giving some people a pill that doesn't have the critical ingredient, mm. but in other respects looks exactly the same. So by taking a pill, people might expect it to improve, but some people are getting the ingredient and others aren't. So you can look and see whether you factored out those expectations. You can check to see whether everybody kind of expects to improve to the same degree. But if you're doing 50 hours of training on a brain game, it's hard to hide the fact that you've done 50 hours of training on that brain game. So people, people know what they did. So, so are you saying that the the solution, in other words, brain training games, it aren't, aren't aren't as robust as the claims, or are you saying that the initial hypothesis that working memory isn't a good thing to develop is no, that I faulty? Th I think I think the I think there's several issues here. One is that yes, the claims definitely outstrip the evidence. Yeah, um, I think that's that's clear cut. In fact. Several companies in the United States have been charged with deceptive advertising for those claims, including Lumosity, which is one of the biggest. Yeah, I saw that. Um, so they, they, the claims certainly overstepped what the evidence showed, because the evidence doesn't really show anything compelling about real-world performance. Mm. But um, I think the thing that we have to keep in mind is that the claim that you can practice one working memory task, or even several working memory tasks, and have that improve that underlying capacity so that it helps you in the real world... That's a really strong claim, given about a century's worth of evidence that training tends to be really narrowly tied to what you did. Yeah. Um, practice, you get better at the thing you practice, and very closely related things, but not distantly related things. Yeah. Um, so the claims from the brain training industry are really strong claims, and they need strong evidence, which is currently lacking. So maybe, it's, maybe it will actually work when the studies are done right, with a large enough scale, with the right kinds of designs. Um, it's not there yet. Hmm. Interesting. So um, it's, it's fascinating to hear about research and um, the process of research because actually it's... Yeah. Um, I mean, what you're doing is you're testing the quality of research. And, and uh, as fascinating as you say, they might be right, but the, it's the efficacy of the research that might be the issue or is it actually the claim in, this, in the first place? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's astonishing, and isn't it? I think, it, I think one thing you know, scientists often struggle with is uncertainty, right? And you know, when there's not compelling evidence for something, that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It just means that there's not evidence for it. Yeah. And there could be lots of things that are really, really interesting for which there's no evidence. And there can also be things for which there's evidence against the effects. And there's a lot of evidence going back 100 years that when you practice something, your training doesn't tend to transfer broadly. Yeah. So... If you practice, so for example, we did a change detection task um, where we trained people for 10 hours um, on a really simple task where they saw, say, a display with five objects on it, photographs of objects, and then, or 10 of them, and then one of them would change and they, uh, during a blank screen. And they do this task over and over and over again for 10 hours. Yeah. And you get better, right? You get better at change detection because you're doing that task. But it turns out that your ability to detect changes isn't what got better. It was your ability to detect changes for those objects yes. and those kinds of objects. If we then switch the task so that everything's the same, except now we're using a different kind of object, sort of novel figures. People are no better than they were at the beginning. Yeah. So there's very limited transfer. You're not necessarily training the underlying mechanism. You're training how well people deal with those particular memory in that context. So, and that's the real challenge. So are we falling back on some of the old tried and trusted things about, um, I don't want to use the word brain training anymore, but you know, overall brain 
um, capacity, you know, by using things like music and diversity and um, rich living oh. and all that sort of stuff, is, is is that as good as or even better than some of these um, some of these more specific um, brain training games? I think it really depends what your goal is, right? So if you enjoy the games and you want to get better at those games, go for it. Right. You know, that, that's that's fine. If your goal is to kind of improve your mental capacity and, and functioning in your daily life, I don't think there's evidence for that. Um, there, there are things that can help, things like exercise and eating well and having you know good social connections. Those, those are great. Yeah. Right? Uh, and there's pretty good evidence from well-controlled trials for the effects of aerobic exercise. Just walking a few times a week uh, can make a big difference relative to being sedentary, yeah. especially for older adults. So there's decent evidence for that, and that makes more sense at some level because what aerobic fitness does is improves blood flow. Yeah. If you improve blood flow, it's going to improve blood flow to the brain too, and that's going to go everywhere yeah. and be beneficial. So, you know, there, there are things you can do that are going to be beneficial. That doesn't mean that these sorts of practicing tasks is a bad thing, right? If you want to get better at something, the best thing you can do is practice it intensively yeah. and, you know, and challenge yourself with it. When, and that, that can be rewarding. Where do you sit on, or, or what are your views on things like meditation, mindfulness, which are all the rage at the moment? You know, I haven't, I haven't looked in detail at that literature. Um, my sense from kind of a cursory review of it is that it suffers from some of the same methods problems um, that uh, the brain training industry does. Um, in some ways, it can be even more challenging because the people who are willing and want to be in a mindfulness training intervention are already going in with expectations that it's going to help them. Mm. Um, so it's there's a real danger in that sort of in any sort of brain training or mindfulness training, or fitness training, or any of these other sorts of interventions, there's a big danger that you're going to get what's known as a demand effect, where people expect to improve, they know they're going to an intervention that's trying to improve them, so there's a really strong pressure to show benefits, yeah. and they're highly motivated to show benefits. And you know that it's hard to kind of control then for how much of any, any improvement is due to those motivations, and how much of it's due to what actually happened during the trial. Yeah. That's good. That's very interesting, and it's it is it's a feature of common life, isn't it? That actually, yeah. what works isn't always the sexiest thing. It's just the thing that actually works and has always worked. Yeah, and, and think, that's and yeah. brain structures are driven around social connections, and that makes a lot more sense, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and and for the for the practice and brain training things, you know, what what's so appealing about the idea of brain training is that you could practice one thing and that it will improve many things. Mm. Right? So in essence, it's a shortcut and an easy way to improve lots of things, yeah. and that's the appeal of it. But you know, we know those kind of rules of thumb about things that are quick fixes and too good to be true. But they generally are. Yeah. And getting better at something typically takes a lot of work. Yeah. Right? You're not going to instantly learn Spanish vocabulary by you know, glancing at a book. You're going to have to practice with flashcards or practice with you know, quizzing yourself. And there are lots of things that actually do improve your knowledge and improve how well you learn, but it's not clear that these are the way. Now, Dan, you've just hit the, the magic thing. I'm learning Spanish at the moment, and I, I regularly throw myself out of a window because how much I practice, it just will not go into this head of mine. So, yeah, uh, it's hard. Know, it is hard. <laughs> Listen, if people would like to see more of your work or read some of your literature and get hold of your books, uh, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, easiest way is just my website is dansimons.com. Right. Um, and it has links to everything. Super. Dan, 
this has been fantastic. I could talk to you for hours and um, maybe at another time I shall. But um, that's been tremendous. I really, really, really appreciate your time today. And um, thank you so much for, for taking part in this podcast. I'm sure people have got immense value about the conversation. My pleasure. You take care. You too. Thanks for listening today. I hope we really got some value from that. I certainly enjoyed it myself. Remember, there's only other podcasts and with tools and techniques, different speakers and different resources available in this series of Resilience Unraveled, so please feel free to subscribe. Why not also drop across to Facebook and join our group, Resilience Unraveled, and join in the conversation. Also, if you wanted to whip over to iTunes and drop us a review, that would be fantastic. Thanks ever so much. You can get hold of us at qedod.com or at personalresilience.com where you can get hold of free ebooks, resources, some online courses and even some coaching. But whatever happens, I look forward for you joining us on the next edition of Resilience Unraveled. Thank you.